Well, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4, and it's a joy, I think, to sing that the Lord receives sinners like you and me, and that we don't have to clean ourselves up before we approach God, but rather He takes us just as we are and transforms us to be something that we in ourselves are not inherently, that is uh, righteous and holy, and so it's good for us to, to sing those truths this morning together and profess our mutual faith in Christ. First Thessalonians chapter 4, as we continue to walk through this, this letter. So we've arrived at uh, chapter 4, and this is really the meat of the letter of uh, 1 Thessalonians, where Paul now is beginning to give instructions to these believers in a particular uh, number of areas of of need. And you'll remember that when they started this church, that uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy were not able to remain in Thessalonica as as long as they would have liked uh, and, and to build these believers up in the Lord. Uh, But they, because of persecution, were forced out of town prematurely. And they wanted to return again and again. But uh, as Paul tells us in this book, that Satan had hindered them. But finally, when they could take it no longer, they sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to uh, check on these believers for for fear uh, that their labors were in vain and that the church and Thessalonica had crumbled. But what Timothy found was not a a congregation just merely surviving, but a congregation that was was thriving as they were holding fast to the Lord and standing up in the face of persecution. And so Timothy comes back to the Apostle Paul, and Silas, who was in Philippi, meets meets with him, and the three of them come back together. And Timothy gives this good report of how the gospel had taken root there in, in Thessalonica. And so Paul almost immediately, would be my guess, sits down to to pen this warm letter. And the first three chapters, as we've walked through together, are something of an extended thanksgiving and a commendation to these believers for just how the gospel has taken root, and he wants to give praise to God, and he does that. But now, in chapter 4, Paul begins to give them instructions in a few areas. And it's likely that the the reason he gives these instructions or the cause of the instructions are are inspired by Timothy's report. So Timothy's brought back a report. He says that they're they're doing well. And yet there are a couple areas that they they need more instruction. And so Paul, as he goes here in chapter 4, is going to unpack some specific instruction for these believers. So in verses uh, 3 through 8, we see the need for abstaining from sexual immorality. In verses 9 and 10, we see the need to abound in love. And then in in verses 11 and 12, we see the need to work quietly with a good testimony before outsiders. And Paul's going to address these particular instructions. Now, we're going to look this week and next week at verses 3 through 8 and the need to abstain from sexual immorality. And this morning, we're really only going to bite off a, a small portion of this Okay, really just verse 3, that's all. All right, and then, in the, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll, we'll finish verses 4 through 8. But let's, uh, let's read this passage together, verses 3 through 8, 
and then we'll uh, look to our Lord in prayer and ask his blessing for our, our time together. Let's begin in verse 1, and we'll, we'll catch the context. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, you know the condition of our hearts, and you know the the prevalence of temptation in our day. And so this is not an obscure passage uh, tucked away that has very little application for us, but Lord, you know you know our temptations and the appeal that sexual immorality has. And so what we need this morning is, is ears to hear and wisdom to apply what your word says. So help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So if you were to talk today to any uh, biblical counselor and ask them what the most common struggles people are facing today... There might be a number of things that they mention, but probably on everyone's top three, four, five list, you would probably have these two things, sexual sin and conflict. Now, to be sure, there would be other things that appear, maybe depression or anxiety or, or guilt, but, but two of the most common areas of need that, that consistently need counsel are these areas of, of sexual sin and, and conflict. And I find it interesting that as we walk into 1 Thessalonians 4 and he begins to give instruction for these believers here in Thessalonica, that two things that he addresses most clearly in this chapter are those, those two items. The need to abstain from sexual immorality and the need to grow in love for one another. Now, it's not like these people were unusually screwed up. And, you know, no one else needed this instruction, but these people needed this instruction. No, these were, these were strong believers standing faithful in the face of persecution. Their faith was ringing out to the surrounding regions, and yet they were struggling in these particular areas. And I think that serves as something of a, of a reminder to us, as an encouragement to us, that, that if the temptations we face are, as Paul refers to them, common to man well, then we would find that 1 Thessalonians 4 is very relatable for each one of us this morning. That we all need instructions in these areas to guard ourselves against sexual temptation and to grow in our love for one another. And so I think what we'll find is that chapter 4 will be immensely practical for us. Now, our study brings us to this exhortation in verse 3. Paul begins and he says, For this is the will of God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. 
As I said, we won't make it past this verse, but everything that's said beyond this verse is really in support of this particular verse. And as we begin this study, I, I would like to remind us that the Bible is true. Okay, now I, I know you know that, all right, and, and you profess that, and we, we talk about it, we sing about it, we refer to the scriptures as the truth. But I mean, the Bible is, is, is really, really true. And, and if you watch society play out before your eyes, it's a consistent testimony to the, to the truth of, this, of the Scripture. Like, you probably have these experiences, like, you read the Bible, but then you see something unfold or unpack, and you're like, it just is a testimony to the truth of the Scriptures. Now, let me explain what we mean here. I was reading a book uh, a while back uh, called God, Marriage, and Family, uh, by Andreas Kostenberger. And I came to this chapter on uh, where he starts to unpack the relationship of, of marriage and, and the sexual relationship within, within marriage. And the author started to unpack uh, God's design for marriage, that, it's to, that sex is to be enjoyed in a, consistently in the context of a marriage relationship. And as he's, as he's unpacking this chapter, he mentions four purposes for uh, for the sexual relationship within, within the context of marriage. Now, three of these you'll be familiar with, and they won't be, be new to you. He says uh, procreation is one of the purposes of sex within marriage. Uh, companionship, he mentions as another one. And, and pleasure, he mentions as, a, as another one. But there was one purpose that he mentions as the purpose of, of sex within the marriage relationship that I thought struck me as unique. And he, he was quoting Christopher Ashe, when he, when, he, when he wrote this, he said this, that the gift of sex in the marriage relationship is God's gift, and he says this, for a well-ordered society. Okay, that being one of the purposes of the sexual relationship. Now, I do a lot of premarital counseling. I mean, a, a lot of premarital counseling. And never have I had an engaged couple sit across from me and say they were looking forward to marital intimacy because they wanted to contribute to the common good of a well-ordered society, okay? It just, it, it has not happened in my, uh, in my days of, of counseling. What Christopher Ashe means by this statement is that God created the sexual relationship to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in the context of marriage, and when sex is kept within those confines, a healthy society ensues. But... When society steps outside those bounds in favor of sexual autonomy and begins to use the gift in ways that God did not intend it to be used, well, what they reap is societal chaos. So let me just mention some of the fallout of sexual sin. Strife, jealousy, hurt, guilt, illegitimate children, single-parent homes, divorce, abortion, poverty, and murder. And all of these are examples of, of, of what happens to a society when sex is not kept within the confines of the marriage relationship. If I could illustrate it just from, from the last few months, right? So our country is currently in chaos because... Uh, Roe v. Wade has been overturned and given back to the, back to the state to determine whether it's legal or not for, for someone to, to have an abortion. And a large percentage of our society, 
believe that women should have the right to murder their baby. Okay? My body, my choice. And ours is a day where, where men and women want their, their sexual freedom, but they can't live with the consequences that that freedom brings. And so abortion has to be legal so that you can maintain your sexual freedom. And the result that we're seeing in our society is, is just absolute chaos. And it's alarming, it's sad, it's ugly, and we, we cry, may God have mercy. But you do know that if our world held to a biblical sexual ethic and kept sex within the confines of marriage, that the entire abortion discussion would be off the table. It wouldn't even be an issue, it wouldn't even be a need to discuss because we would be living in a more well-ordered society as was God's intent in the marriage relationship. But instead, we'll continue to experience chaos because we are broken at the very foundation. So when men and women step outside the bounds of God, uh, that God has established, they think they're experiencing freedom, but really they're just enslaving themselves to more hurt and consequences that they don't really want to live with. Okay? I often thought that it would be an interesting study to walk through the scriptures and to just note all the fallout from sexual sin. And, and the stories are numerous. If you just take David alone, uh, the fallout from his sin with Bathsheba uh, were consequences that he himself could not bear. And so as we begin our study here, I want us to be convinced of how true the Bible is. Right? As you watch the chaos of society unfold, it's a testimony to the truthfulness of Scripture. And, and when, we, when we see the instructions like are, are before us here in 1 Thessalonians 4, we can't roll our eyes as if these are some, some instructions that are so out of date that they have no relevance for our society today. But rather, we have to embrace this reality that, that, that God knows what he's talking about. He established the sexual relationship. He, he put the parameters on it and, and the intent of how it should be used and has intended a well-ordered society from it and what we see is that God is right, the Bible is true, as it has been, and it always will be. And so I think as we approach this, this, these instructions this morning, we have to approach them with this reality, that, that we believe in the truthfulness of Scripture and the goodness of, of God in, in organizing the, the sexual relationship. Now this morning, we're going to consider, as I said, just verse 3. And as we do so, I want to walk through three questions about this particular passage. Okay, three questions about this passage. First of all, what is meant by God's will? Number two, what is meant by sanctification? And number three, how does, how does it work? How does sanctification work, especially in this area of abstaining from sexual immorality? So we'll sort of lay the groundwork this morning. And then in the, in the week, in next week, we will uh, we'll finish this passage, Lord willing, on, uh, on, on the call to abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, so first of all, asking this question, what is meant by God's will? Right, so this is how uh, verse number three starts for us. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, so we have this expression at the very beginning of verse 3, for this is the will of God. So when we read that expression, the will of God, we, it's important for us to understand that it can refer to one of two things 
in, in, the, in the Bible. Okay, so it can refer, first, it can refer to God's, we'll call it God's decreed will. Okay, so when we see the expression, the will of God in Scripture, it can refer to God's decreed will. Another, will, another word for God's decreed will might be his, his sovereign will or his secret will. In other words, God has a will. He has a, a, a purpose and, and a plan that he has predetermined before the foundation of the world, and he is in the process of working all things out in accordance with his, with his will. And, and nothing happens in this world that's not according to God's predetermined will. So, for example, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 You remember this phrase, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. So God's got this will, and he's working all things out according to his will. Now, you remember James chapter 4, and and James' condemnation against these individuals who were planning but not taking God's sovereign will into account, right? He says, come now, you who say we're going to go into to this such and such a city, we're going to buy and sell and make a profit. And James condemns them, not because they were planning, but because in their planning, they didn't leave room for the will of God to be something different. Rather, James says, what you should say is if the Lord wills, or if the Lord allows, or if it's according to his, his sovereign plan, then we're going to do this and that. Okay, so this is the idea that we see in Scripture of God's sovereign will. So when we come to, the, come to God's will in Scripture, sometimes it can be referred to here as his decreed will. But a second use of the phrase will of God is used in the New Testament is, is what we might call God's desired will. Okay, God's desired will. And, and, and sometimes we can call God's desired will God's revealed will. Because what he has done is he had, has revealed his desires for you and me in the pages of Scripture. Like he's given us command after command after command of things that he, he wants us to do. And it's, it's his desire, it's his will, it's his wish that we would walk in obedience to these things. So here we have that expression in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, this is the will of God your sanctification. So God's desire for you and for me is our sanctification. If you turn over to chapter 5, you see another expression of God's desired will in verse 18. In verse 18, he says, give thanks in all circumstances for what? This is the will of God. Or in other words, it's what God has revealed to us as his will, or it's God's desire for us to give thanks in all circumstances. Now, there are, are more commands in Scripture that, that talk about the will of God, but, but 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 suffice to give us appropriate examples of what we mean by God's desired will. Now, note this. God's decreed will, okay, that's the first one we looked at where he has a sovereign plan. God's decreed will is secret. It is known only to him and it always happens. But God's desired will, it's not secret, rather it's revealed, and I think we have to acknowledge that it doesn't always happen. So God's will is our sanctification, and God's will is that in everything we give thanks, but you and I both know 
that in every situation, we don't always give thanks. Okay, it's God's desire for us, but it's not something that always comes to pass. Now, these are the two ways in which the Bible uses God's will. But there's a third way in which the will of God is often used among Christians, and that, we might say, is to speak of God's will of direction. Okay, now, I'm not advocating for this idea of God's will, but it's the way some believers use the phrase God's will. And that is, believers think that they are responsible to find God's will before they make a particular decision about the direction of their life. So they believe that, that they need to find out what God's will is for the, for the college that they attend or for the person that they're going to marry. They need to figure out God's will. Or they're going to buy a car, and so they need to know which car they're going to buy. Or they need to buy a house, and so they need to know which house they're going to buy according to, to God's will. And they can't make such a decision until they know that it's God's will that this is uh, his plan for their life. And really what they want to know is that the, the, their decision is going to be met with blessing and not any, any difficulty. Because if you run into difficulty, then you know that perhaps you miss God's perfect will and you're now on his permissive will. Okay, so... Uh, The problem, though, is that the Scriptures never promise that God's going to reveal specifically these types of things to us. So the Lord is not going to tell you, I don't want to shock anybody this morning, the Lord is not going to tell you who to marry. Now, the Lord is going to tell you certain parameters for marriage, right? You should should marry in the Lord. And and, and then beyond that, the Lord's going to give you the wisdom and the desire to, 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 and the freedom, I should say, to, to marry someone that you'd like to marry. But in terms of God revealing someone specific to you, he's, he's not going to do that, nor is he going to reveal a specific house or a specific car or a specific job that you are going to, 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 to receive God's clear revelation on that. What's problematic is that people, when they come to use God's will in this way, they, they have to look outside of the Bible to get some sort of guidance on who to marry or what car to buy. And so they often make these decisions based on a, a sign or a feeling or, or a hunch that God's leading them in a particular direction, right? So an example might be one, one time I was, I was, it was about January or February, and I was trying to decide whether I should go down to, to Myrtle Beach to play golf with my dad on vacation, right? And, and so I was talking to to Pastor Nate at the time as we were driving, we pulled off the off-ramp at, at Baldwin Road, pulled up behind a car, and there in the back of the car was a South Carolina license plate. And I knew that was a sign that I should go to, to Myrtle Beach in order to, to play golf, okay? Well, what happens is when we believe that God's giving us this will of direction, uh, and, and, and he's going to very specifically tell us what to do, it's not found on the pages of Scripture, so we find ourselves looking for hunches and signs and things like that, that God has not intended for us, okay? Now, my concern, and the reason I bring all this up, is because today, too many people are concerned with finding God's will, and they're not concerned enough with what he has already said is his will, and and doing and obeying his will. So, for example, we've got scores of people who are concerned about finding the right person to marry or finding the right college to go to or finding the right house to purchase. But they completely overlook passages like 1 Thessalonians 4. Like, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And I'm convinced that if we we gave ourselves 
to, 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 be, to be consumed with, with our sanctification, that we would already be in a good spot to make decisions that are wise and pleasing to the Lord. So when we ask this question, first of all, what does it mean God, when we see this expression, God's will? What we simply mean here is that this is God's desire for you and for me. And God's desire is our sanctification. And if we see that it's God's will as our sanctification, then this is something you and I should be consumed with, growing in our holiness. Okay, this leads us then to our second question. What is meant by sanctification? What is, it, what is meant by sanctification? Okay, so notice he says here, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Well, the word sanctification really just means to be set apart. In its, in its most basic meaning, it means to be set apart. So you remember in the Old Testament, uh, there, were certain, there were certain items in the temple that were, that were sanctified or they were set apart as, as holy. But, but the term also carries a moral dimension that were set apart from sin. So God is, is holy, and it's not just the fact that he's, he's set apart from his creation, but, but in, his, in, his, in his attributes or in his, in, his, in his morality, he is set apart from, from sin. And so holiness takes on more of this idea of being set apart from sin. And in the New Testament, this is what we see uh, specifically uh, when it refers to sanctification. Okay, we're, we're set apart or, or sanctified from, from sin. And when we come to the New Testament, there are two ways in which the, the word sanctification can be used. The first is what we might call definitive sanctification. Okay? Definitive sanctification, or sometimes referred to as initial sanctification. So this is what happens at our conversion. When we repent of our sin, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are sanctified, or we are set apart from, from sin. And what happens here is there is a definitive break from sin at our conversion, where we are, are, are sanctified. And it's this definitive break from sin that then enables us to walk in, in holiness. Right? So if I, I don't want to go too deep, too deep in the weeds here, but if you think about it like this, justification is where God declares us to be something that we're not, righteous. But, but God declaring us to be something that we're not, it only affects our position. It doesn't affect our experience. So we're justified. We're, 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 we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, but it doesn't necessarily change anything inherently in us. But when we are sanctified, God brings about through the work of the Spirit this break from sin so that now we have this, this new nature and are able to walk in obedience to, to Christ. And so you remember this passage when, when Paul says, don't you know that, that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, or, nor idolaters or, 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 or fornicators? He goes on this long list. But then he says this in 1 Corinthians six eleven, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. So when the scriptures use the word sanctified or sanctification, it can be something that happens in the past, something that happened at our conversion where there was a definitive break from sin. But secondly, the, the word sanctification can refer to our progressive sanctification. 
And this is the way that it's being used here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And this is what we might call the process of becoming holy. Okay, the process where you and I become what we already are in Christ. Okay, where we progressively start to look more like Christ. And this doesn't happen in a moment, but it happens over a period of time where by the work of the Spirit in our lives, we start to resemble more and more our Lord and Savior. And so when Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, what he means here is this is God's desire for you and for me that we grow up into holiness in this progressive sanctification. Now this then leads us to our last question. Okay, this is God's desire for us. Then how does it work? How is it that you and I start to become holy in our walk with Christ? Now what's funny here is, and interesting I think, is if we only looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we might get a little bit of a skewed perspective on how sanctification works. Right, so in verse 3... He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. In verse 4, he says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. In verse 6, he says that if you don't do this, the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And if you only looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for your sanctification and, and how it's supposed to play out, here's the conclusion you might draw. Well, I better abstain. I better get control over myself, and if I don't, God is going to judge me. Now, that's like mostly true, all right? That we should abstain from sexual immorality. We need to get control over ourselves, and we do face the danger of God's judgment if we don't walk in holiness, okay? But that's not the full picture of how sanctification works. In fact, turn over one page to chapter 5 and verse 23. Paul's giving his his closing benediction here to, to the Thessalonians, and he says this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you're like, hang on, all right? Because I thought sanctification was me abstaining from sexual immorality, exercising self-control over myself or God's going to judge me. And then I turn the page over to 523, and what I see here is that it's the God of peace himself who sanctifies us completely. So which is it? Is it, is it me pulling myself up by my own bootstraps? Or is it God who sanctifies me entirely? And the answer to that question is Yes. All right, so somebody's already ahead of Thank you, Connie. That was good. All right, so the answer to that question is, is yes. That both aspects are involved in the sanctification process. God is at work, and we are, have, are responsible participants in that work so that we grow up into holiness. Now, one of the things I find most helpful is, is just the way Michael Riccardi, in, in his little book on sanctification, outlines this for us. When he says, that really, sanctification, he makes three observations. Number one, he says, sanctification 
is fundamentally internal and supernatural. Okay, sanctification is fundamentally internal and supernatural. That is this, that in sanctification, we are not merely bringing our outward behavior into conformity with God's rules and regulations. Okay, notice Romans 12 doesn't say, don't be conformed to the world, but be conformed to Christianity. That's not what it says. It says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Okay, so what's taking place first in sanctification is that we are being transformed inwardly by God's grace so that our desires are changing and our passions are changing and our loves are changing so that it begins to result in a change of behavior, right? Sanctification is not make the fruit good so that then the tree becomes good, but it's the opposite. The the tree needs to be given life in order that good fruit can be produced from it. Okay, so sanctification, first of all, is is fundamentally internal and it's supernatural. Secondly, he says, sanctification is a sovereign work of God the Holy Spirit. So this is what he means then in in chapter 5 and verse 23 when he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, that in our growth and holiness, God is at work in us. Do you remember Philippians chapter 2, where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but then he gives the grounds for it. He says what? For it's God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So even the desire to do good things and the desire to produce fruit in our lives, it comes from God's work in the life of the believer. In fact, here in chapter 4, He even says at the end of the passage in verse 8, when he says, Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his spirit to you. Like, the reason you should be walking and abstaining from sexual immorality and not rejecting these things is because God has already given you his spirit to accomplish these things in your life. So first of all, sanctification is fundamentally internal and supernatural. Secondly, sanctification is a sovereign work of God the Spirit. And thirdly, in sanctification, the Spirit employs means to accomplish His work. Okay, the Spirit employs means to accomplish this work. In other words, the Lord doesn't sanctify us apart from us, but rather as we apply ourselves to certain means, God sanctifies us in holiness. Now, what are some of those means? Well, abstaining from sexual immorality. Okay, obedience is is a means. As we pray, we draw on God's power to be sanctified. As we as we read the Word and are taught the Word. That is one of the means that God uses to to grow us up into holiness. And what about our relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ? Those relationships are meant to be a means to to move us on, to stimulate us, to stir us up to, to love and good works. And sometimes, probably our least favorite one, the Lord uses trials in this life to sort of strip away the the earth and to, to make us more like Jesus Christ. And, and those are the, some of the means that God uses 
to, to produce this godliness in us. And it's your job and it's my job to give ourselves to the means or to put us on the path that God intends to use to make us holy. Now, one of the things I like about Michael Riccardi's little book, most, uh, is most helpful, is he notes this, and this is, this is really profound, and I think if we catch this, we'll, we'll be a lot better off for it. He notes that this, that the means that God uses to sanctify us are not ends in themselves. So, for example, when I read the Scripture, it's not just the, the Scripture that changes me. But what he says is this, that the chief means that God uses to change us is beholding the glory of God. And what he means by that is, is, is when we come to the Scriptures, we see the beauty and the glory of God. And we are changed by the beauty and glory of God. And as we, as we pray, we come, we come with boldness and enter the throne of grace and we, we approach a, a glorious God and are, are changed by our communion and fellowship with Him. And as we relate to one another, what we're to see in one another is the, the beauty of God in one another and, and the encouragement that we have in one another that encourages us to, to love God more. And as we face the trials of this life, well, we realize this life is not all that it's cracked up to be, and we, we, we grow in our love for God because we see how good and loving and caring He is. So the, the means are not just ends in themselves, but they're meant to lead us to see how good and lovely our Lord is. And as that process happens, Lord willing, we are changed and we grow up into greater holiness. Okay, so how then does this relate to abstaining from sexual immorality? Right, as, as we look to chapter 4 and, and move into next week, how do we begin to put these kinds of things into practice? Like, how do we connect sanctification to abstaining from sexual immorality? Well, I think what these three things are helpful. Okay, the three, the three points we looked at in sanctification. So, so first, as we think about abstaining from sexual immorality, we're not just bringing our external behavior into conformity with God's laws in order to fight against the temptation to sexual immorality. But as we fight these things, we must be changing from the inside, that our desires are changing, that our, 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 our passions and our loves are changing, right? Because look at chapter 4 here, and he says, abstain from sexual immorality. In verse 4, he says, know how to control your own body, but then in verse 5, he notes this, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That we're to be experiencing this, this change of, of passions and change of, of, of desires that are not experienced among the Gentiles. Okay, so, so sanctification is, is first and foremost, it's fundamentally internal and supernatural. So if we're going to abstain from sexual immorality, it first needs to be on the level of our desires. Okay, we must fight it and change our desires. Secondly, we must rely on the gracious aid of the Holy Spirit to produce these things in us. Like we don't just go out and fight in our own strength, but rather we take on the armor of God, we rely on His grace as we seek to walk in obedience to Him. I like that passage in Ephesians 6 when he talks about the armor of God. And then you get to the very end of the passage and then he says, 
in all things, praying at all times. Like the armor is good, but with the armor must come a constant drawing on God's power to fight with his strength. So we change our desires, we rely on the gracious work of, of the Spirit, and then lastly, we give ourselves to the means that God has provided. Right? So, so when we want to fight sexual immorality, we, we, we take up all the means that God has given us. Prayer, the Word, the accountability of, of other brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? obedience to his, to his Word. And I think one of the mistakes that people often make in, in fighting sexual immorality or in fighting whatever sin is we don't avail ourselves to the means, to all the means that God has given. So it's like, well, okay, I've got this temptation towards sexual immorality, so I'll I'll pray about it, and I'll read the Word and try to gain strength to fight against it, but I'm not going to talk to somebody about this struggle. I'm not going to seek accountability for this because, well, what would they think of me if I told them that I struggle in this way? Well, they would probably think you're just like I am. And they would try to be an encouragement to you, right? But the problem is we don't avail ourselves to all the means that God has used. So when, when it comes to this idea of fighting sin, it's like we've got to, put our, we've got to make, make use of all of the means that God's given us. So whether it's accountability, whether it's the word, whether it's prayer, whether it's the regular gathering, we need to use all the means that God has given us to grow up in holiness. So friends, this is what God's desire is for you and for me. Not that we become enamored with finding God's will, but that we become enamored with knowing God's will and obeying God's will, growing up in our sanctification. And as we move forward here in our study, we'll see that that means abstaining from sexual immorality. So let's pray together. Father, we marvel at your wisdom and in the truth that you've given us. And we're thankful, as Pastor Mike prayed earlier, that you haven't left us to, to live in our own wisdom, but you've given us the wisdom of Scripture, which, as we've studied this morning, proves to be true again and again as we walk through this chaotic society. Lord, let us be convinced that your ways are right, your ways are good, and let us seek to put them into practice in our lives and live for your glory. For it's in Christ that we pray. Amen.